Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle's program on great food, drink and hospitality. I am Markus Hippi. This week we had to Turin to visit one of the world's greatest food fairs, Salona del Gusto. A lot of sharing and caring and information and knowledge uh, exchange has happened and many recipes have been shared regarding these important food crops. Then we cross over to France where the price of baguettes is causing controversy. The price of a loaf of the traditional baguette has been a sensitive issue in France this year, as the war in Ukraine and the European droughts and heat waves have wreaked havoc with global wheat prices. We'll also meet the founder of Delhi, a new app that promises to connect local food producers and consumers. All that's the week's headlines and Adina Sound's recommendation too, ahead in this episode of The Menu. First today we celebrate the return of one of the world's preeminent food fairs, the Salone del Gusto. Held in Turin, the event is put on by Italy's famed slow food movement and it brings together a network of traditional food producers from across the globe along with farmers and experts on gastronomy and agriculture. For the latest edition, we dispatched Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Cavallio to the proceedings to hear from participants on where the world of food is headed. Started in 1986 by Italian journalist Carlo Petrini, slow food grew out of a protest by Petrini and a handful of others against the arrival of fast food chain McDonald's to Rome. Today, the movement's biennial event in Turin, Salon del Gusto, pulls in 350,000 visitors. They come primarily to taste foodsteps from hundreds of producers from dozens of nations who make up the Terra Madre network, which brings together communities that respect the environment and preserve old-fashioned practices. Not surprisingly, many of those in turn handing out samples to eat were based in Italy. One producer is Susanna Spiso, who with apiculturist Carlo Amadeo worked to extract honey from the hives of black Sicilian bees, a species near extinction that the pair helped bring back and now offer delectable monofloral honeys. Stands of the Terra Madre Network at Salon del Gusto celebrated diversity. Visitors could try wild oysters harvested in Holland's Vaden Sea, to raw milk macagna cheese from Valsesia in the Alps of northwest Italy. A popular stop was the Ukraine booth with its selection of dried fruits and vegetables, including beetroot. Dasha Snapkova of Slow Food Ukraine. In Kyiv, we have um, local gardens where we grow fruits and vegetables. And like we have a recipe which is uh, 300 years old. Um, in this recipe, we dehydrated fruits and veggies uh, from, I don't know, from carrots and pumpkin uh, to the beetroot. And uh, visitors of uh, Terra Madre, uh, they were really shocked with the beetroot uh, and we sold it like uh, in a few days. Uh, uh, also, people enjoyed uh, the pine cone jam, 
uh, in Ukraine uh, in Carpathian Mountains. Uh, we, we grow pine trees and we collect uh, the pine cones when they're milky young, uh, like really small, and then we keep them in sugar syrup and they get soft and gentle. And people from, I don't know, from Iran, Austria, USA and lots of countries, uh, most of them, they told that they have never tried uh, this kind of thing before. Uh, so it's like uh, Ukrainian gem uh, which surprised the, the people, the visitors of Terra Madre. Beyond the Terra Madre project at Salon de Gusto, the open-air venue devoted space to teaching people about crops and farming. One was the Global Bean Project, which promotes the use of legumes in cooking and educates people on the diversity of beans, lentils and peas and how best to grow them. I caught up with Nicolas Corton, of the Global Bean Project. Now, Nicholas, maybe just walk me through some of these uh, beans that you have here and, and ones that maybe people at home don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe you have never tried cooking fava beans, for instance. It's the dry version of the, the broad bean that you may have in your garden that you use usually eat fresh, but you can do really nice uh, dishes with the, with the dry one as well. And you can also use chickpeas, a diversity of chickpeas, not only the ones that are found everywhere, but also the red one, the blanco lechoso from the south of Spain, which is bigger, has a really smooth texture, and is easy to cook in all kinds of dishes, salads, soups, uh, stews. The combinations are uh, um, infinite, I could say. This year's event saw the passing of the baton as Carlo Petrini stepped down as slow food president. Edward Muchibi, a Ugandan agronomist and farmer, is the movement's new leader. Muchibi is keen to raise awareness about regenerative agriculture and its push to drop pesticides and emphasize cover crops to help mitigate climate change and ensure soil health. He also wants to protect local varieties of grains and other crops in the face of big agribusiness. There is a big debate on grains today, but there are so many grains in Afri- on the African continent, like finger millet, like fonio, like uh, uh, teff, sorghum, many different varieties of grains. When we talk about the uh, grain world, most of these don't appear because the, uh, uh, the wheat, uh, the corn, they dominate, and the rice, they dominate these debates. But today in Terra Madre, we see how communities are working with these traditional uh, grains and the traditional seeds of these grains and how much knowledge communities still have with, this, uh, with, with these uh, varieties of grains. So regeneration means bringing back this knowledge. Regeneration means reuse, re- restarting to think about and also to take action to use these grains uh, in our daily lives and also to overcome the shocks in the global grain uh, uh, distribution, uh, distribution or supply chains. So there are many of these products, hundreds of varieties, hundreds of species have been brought by uh, uh, Madre delegates from all over the world and a lot of sharing and caring and information and knowledge uh, exchange has happened and many recipes have been shared regarding these important food crops. Interest in what we eat and how we make it is becoming ever more important for today's consumers, and the large crowds at Salon de Gusto confirm this. Patrons sought out delicacies from small artisan suppliers that showed off the planet's incredible arc of taste, and one that slow food seeks to preserve. For Monocle, in Turin, I'm Ivan Carvalho.
Thanks to Ivan for that report. Let's next get an update on what the food and drink industry is talking about. Here is Monaco's Lillian Fawcett with this week's headlines. Spanish olive oil production could collapse after one of the country's worst harvests in decades. Persistent drought combined with this year's extreme summer heat caused severe damage to Spain's agriculture, driving up prices. In southern Andalusia, which produces 80% of Spanish olive oil, the government predicts production will fall by nearly half. Spain is the world's largest olive oil producer. A shortage of carbon dioxide gas in the UK could mean higher prices on goods like beer and chicken. CO2 is a byproduct of fertilizer production, which has been curbed because of soaring prices for natural gas amid the war in Ukraine. This triggered a 3,000% increase in the unit price for liquid carbon dioxide. The gas is used to make drinks fizzy and in meat production. Quality Street chocolates have ditched their famous brightly coloured foil and plastic wrapping for a recyclable paper alternative. Owners Nestlé said they hope to stop nearly 2 billion wrappers a year ending up in landfill. The British selection box chocolates are popular at Christmas and feature favourites like the green triangle and the purple one. The stakes are high on the Japanese island of Kyushu this week as the country's largest Wagyu beef fair kicks off. Dubbed the Wagyu Olympics, the event is held once every five years and sees Japanese regions compete to be awarded world's best beef. The show could attract nearly half a million visitors and sees cows paraded, inspected and later eaten. The winner will be announced on October 10th. Thanks, Lillian. You are with The Menu on Monocle 24. France produces 33 million tonnes of wheat a year, half of which it exports. Despite this annual bounty, a year of European heatwaves and wars have troubled French boulangeries. At the same time as that French classic, the crisp 90-cent daily baguette has become the unlikely lightning rod in a culture war. Monaco's Sally Howard reports. Okay. I'm in Perrier, a polite village in Normandy that's a haunt, pour le weekend, of expensively maintained Parisians. The call my agent set are here for a spot of vintage antique shopping, or vantiquing, and for gustatory indulgences at the town's smattering of gourmet restaurants. There's a snake in queue, too, at Chichi Boulangerie Les Pins de Saint-Hilaire, where feathery tarts abricot jostle for counter space with plump loaves de compagne and baguettes are serried like soldiers ranked for inspection. These include the traditionnel or boulanger's baguette and the esoteric four-croute baguette sarmentine with its distinctive quartet of crunchy tips. Boulanger Edouard Touché loads these starchy staffs of life into rustling paper bags. Le prix du pain, the price of a loaf of the traditional baguette, has been a sensitive issue in France this year, as the war in Ukraine and the European droughts and heat waves have wreaked havoc with global wheat prices. As for all boulangers, the possibility of rising prices causes Edouard a small degree of anxiety. 
Nous, ça n'a pas augmenté parce qu'on euh, travaille vraiment en extra local. We get our flour locally from local producers, Edouard tells me. And the price is fixed the year before, so for now we're safe. At the moment, we don't know what the price of the new season's flour will be, however, though everything else is going up, particularly butter. To tourists, they're a staple of French life. But for the French, the price of une baguette is both a marker of French society's health and fodder for anxious village small talk. In 1960, a baguette cost 35 centimes of a franc, roughly equivalent to five centimes today. It cost 1.6 francs in 1980, or 25 centimes today, and 3.15 in 1990, or 48 centimes of a euro. Since then, although official government price controls of baguettes ended in 1978, its price has plateaued at around 89 centimes, according to ANSE, who are France's National Statistics Institute. Factory-produced supermarket loaves, meanwhile, cost around half that, at 45 centimes. All of this began to change in early 2022, however, when a number of local bakeries crossed the hallowed euro threshold with the price of their regular baguettes, at the same time as supermarket discounters launched a price war, which saw loaves sold by Leclerc and Lidl, the latter held by many to be a rather spongy affair, plummet to 29 centimes. French bakers and millers reacted strongly calling this race to the bottom a slap in the face for village boulangers. Hélène Duflo is the wheat market analyst for French economic forecaster Strategy Grains. Uh, we had quite disappointing uh, yield um, under the Loire, the river the Loire, but uh, quite good and even excellent yields in the uh, north part of France like in Normandy. The problem... Duflo says, is the quality of the wheat. Unpredictable rainfall and heat waves can produce a wheat that's low in protein and therefore only suitable for animal feed rather than temperamental and sensitive bread baking. We had some issues in France with uh, a little bit lower protein level than what we could expect without the, without the dryness. Also the case Two hundred kilometres west, in rural Minayak Morven, in Brittany, artisan baker Anne-Lise Audin is throwing open the creaking doors of her fournil. A 16th-century farmstead, La Binalaire is today home to a selection of well-appointed holiday gîtes, with a scattering of outbuildings. One of these outbuildings is a French revolutionary stone bread oven that Audin, the granddaughter of the original farming family, restored last year after a period working as a baker in Nantes. Audin has been following the turbulent grain prices, yet buys directly from local millers, who grow their grain and process this grain on their own farms. So, she hopes, she won't witness business-threatening price hikes this coming winter. Audin hands me one of her loaves. It's dense, with an almost blackened crust, and would make any hackney hipster baker proud.
Je fais du pain car je souhaite un travail qui a du sens. Le pain est un aliment de base. I make bread because I want a job that makes sense, Odin tells me. Bread is an essential staple food which conveys beautiful values. It's also balanced work because it's both physical and meditative. I have my bread baking time when I'm all alone and then customer interactions that are much more sociable. Et des moments de vente où je peux échanger. Odin hands me 50 centimes change from 5 euros for two loaves. A snip compared to London artisan loaves which come in at around 5 pounds. Odin's bread is made over a laborious 8-hour process that's unchanged since medieval days. It's shaped by hand and baked in this ancient oven. It's a process, hands on dough, that's permanent in a sea of 2020s volatility, and it is, she says, as essential for France as it is for the soul. In an August Charlie Hebdo magazine issue, themed for the summer food supply crisis in France, when Dijon mustard, which is grown in Canada, also disappeared from France's shelves, cultural commentator Eric Fotorino wrote of France's long-held identity through agriculture. Its numerous and pliant farming peasantry, its rich soils and its varied climate. Plowing and grazing, claims Fotorino, are the two breasts from which France is fed. However, Fotorino continues, the turbulence of Covid, climate change and the war in Ukraine have shown the folly in the modern way of relying on international markets. It's a folly that's borne the unsavoury fruit of fluctuating bread prices, he says, even as France exports half of its wheat harvest. Fotorino called for a return to local production and genetically diverse French ancient country wheats rather than monocrops that dominate the landscape. Her loaves sold, Audin is closing shop until next Thursday, when once again she will erect a swinging wooden sign reading Fournil Ouvert. It's a rustic advertisement that the ancient bread oven is disgorging its weekly wares en croûte. The French, Audin says, are increasingly worried, yes, about hikes and the price of their weekly baguettes. Tant qu'ils peuvent consommer, c'est ce qu'ils leur importe. But despite this, the old Gallic clichés ring true. Audin's customers prize quality, locally made bread, overspending on such superficial fripperies as the latest Chinese-American smartphone. The French may be feeling the pain of rising bread prices, but Le Pain, that ancient signifier of the French belle vie and of identity, will endure. Thanks to Sally Howard for that report. You are with the menu on Monocle 24.
Before this week's Dinner Soundtrack recommendation, let's hear from Simon Beckerman, who has founded a new community-led food app called Delhi. Currently available in the UK, the app promises to be a retail platform for a new generation of food makers in the country. There is a chance you may well have heard Simon's name before us, before Delhi he launched the fashion online marketplace Depop. In the summer, Delhi managed to raise over $7 million, and Simon joins me in the studio to tell more about the plans he has for the new app. Delhi is a platform that brings together independent food makers with what we like to call sometimes conscious consumers. So it starts with an assumption which is that food in a sort of way, the food industry is broken, processes and sourcing are becoming always more uh, opaque, quality and health are always sacrificed for higher profit margins, if I may use this uh, phrase. And so we are noticing that um, many people are becoming, starting to go in opposition to that. They want to eat more healthy, more sustainable, therefore more local. And so especially during the pandemic, uh, this phenomenon has grown uh, massively. And so what we wanted to do is build a platform that brings together all these new kind of independent food makers bring them in, in front of uh, interested consumers. And how local is that? Where are these producers normally when you look into the app and, and see what's available? Local is a very loose term, depending. So it can be local for me, or it can be local in the sense of comes from a little town. They usually sell locally around that town, but they are considered uh, local even by us if, if we are far because they're a small producer, independent, and they care about these kind of values. So with Delhi, obviously, we are going towards a direction where we want to enable people to buy as close to them as possible. So it depends. It depends. So the app is about making connections between great local producers and, and customers. How, how have you been finding these producers, for example? That's a good question. Uh, various uh, methods. Initially, for example, some of them we discovered through Instagram. So we we find one because someone sends the sends the link to us, and then we start following who they follow or seeing similar ones, and then step by step the the search broadens, and then maybe, for example, we hired as part of our team a couple of people from the food community who knew others. And this is actually, by going through this, this is what made us understand how uh, big this community is. and uh, Nobody sees it. At the moment, Delhi is operating in the United Kingdom. Tell me more about those producers you have found over here. So there are uh, many kinds of producers. For example, people who do chili sauce. Uh, there are a couple of people who do vegan ice creams, uh, someone does tacos, uh, we have uh, pandan, which is a new kind of food I discovered on Delhi. Uh, we've got, for example, kefir, uh, kombucha, uh, all sorts of products which are not even, as uh, generally speaking, considered mainstream staples in a sort of way. Or maybe they are variants of that. For example, there's this seller who, uh, maker who uh, makes um, hot honey, uh, ah. which is really, really interesting. Yeah. Tell me more about that hot honey. So they are called Dr. Stinks. And basically they do spicy honey. 
and uh, they discovered this in the US and they decided to bring the concept uh, in, uh, in the UK and uh, they have this amazing brand. Uh, I love it because, for example, on the label there's this uh, slogan which says, fuck wasps. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure if I may use this word. Yeah, very, very... <laughs> that, that sounds amazing. Um, Simon, you mentioned the pandemic over there and how pandemic made us appreciate all these producers. I wondered, was it during the pandemic that you started thinking about creating this app as well or are the roots of Delhi Longa? They are longer, actually. Uh, as I was doing Depop, obviously I am someone who loves to constantly think about new ideas. I observe communities out there and see what's going on. I love observing what's new, what's coming up in in many, many areas all across uh, the, uh, the fields, creative fields in general. And I remember in 2012, this was, the I think, the very first spark uh, of my Delhi idea when I thought about building um, a little chain of corner shops uh, that were aimed at serving good quality food, but also connected to each other through an app, which uh, I could uh, buy from and then go and collect in person or have someone with a bicycle delivering to me. And so I I had this idea already in 2012. But then during the pandemic, uh, that was a phase actually when I wasn't um, full time at Depop anymore. Depop has a CEO who's running the company. I was on the board. Um, and so I was looking for something new to, to do. And as a someone who is passionate about building communities, I started looking around. And so I uh, picked from my old uh, ideas and I put together this uh, concept, uh, as I said, also because of the pandemic and observing what was happening there. So, yeah. Now, you've had quite a good start for the business, considering that it was just confirmed that you have raised $7 million in funding. Now, how is that money going to be spent? So now we are going through a phase which we internally call validation phase or like startup people like to call product market fit. Uh, So what we are going to do is we are testing the app in the UK uh, with a small community of sellers, uh, um, learning how they they like to use the app, learning how to do logistics, which is a complicated thing, especially in food. So we're going to use the next year or two to learn all of these things. So stay as much in stealth mode as possible. And once we learned, the goal is to then package it into a playbook, which we can then expand into other countries, hopefully as soon as possible. Simon, I'm wondering, what has it been like to launch a new business like this? You're kind of back in the startup phase, considering that Depop you were also creating some years ago ended up with 500 or so staff members. Now, at the moment, when I'm doing this interview, you have 13 staff members with Delhi. Well, it's a different situation. Every company goes through different phases. Uh, There's, let's call it the startup phase. Then there's the uh, scale-up or growth stage. Uh, and every phase needs has different problems and things that you need to tackle and challenges. Uh, the startup phase is very exciting because you don't know where you're going towards. Uh, it's like I like to compare it uh, as you jump on a race car on a track and you press the accelerator. The car is very powerful, and so it starts skidding left and right and you need to control it. But as you control it more and more, the car skids less and you can accelerate. 
and you start going faster and straighter. So the first phase is very dangerous, if I may use this word, mm -hmm. but also very exciting and unique. I love it. Where is that guy going to, by the way? I'm wondering when you think about the future of Delhi and how you would like to see Delhi change the world of food, for example. What is your grand vision? So our dream is to bring good food in every table to as many people as possible. Uh, we think that in a sort of way, uh, big food is broken. Processes and sourcing are more and more opaque. Quality and sustainability are sacrificed for, if I may say, bigger profit margins. And so we think that this is affecting the health of the people too. Uh, therefore society in a bit. And so uh, my dream is to build a platform that brings together food makers who care about these values with consumers who want to make a change in the way they consume food. And I think the only way to do it is to empower young, new, independent uh, food makers. And I think that uh, this, uh, uh, um, this world of food is potentially... Uh, massive all over the world and through a platform like Delhi we can uh, bring them all together and uh, build this. Simon Beckerman, founder of Delhi there and that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes and obviously you will find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineer was Kellen McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Fat Boy Slim with Praise You. Thanks for listening.